you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we remember from last week that number one, God looks upon the heart, and so should we. Number two, that, that means the cleansing of our lives must work from the inside out. And then finally, we find that there's, there's hope in learning about David's life because as we examined King Saul and David, particularly as you contrast from reading 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we saw that the functional difference between the two was that King Saul's heart desired to be honored by the people, whereas David, his heart desired God. They both sinned deeply, so the actions weren't necessarily what would separate them. And then we take that upon ourselves and we think, we are going to fail. We are going to sin. That's not what's going to be the difference for us. We must learn to look upon the heart and make sure that our heart desires God continually and that we will live a life of repentance, just like we saw in King David. So as we come into chapter 17 and as it opens, we have the Philistines here that are deep in the territory of Judah. They are far from their own land, uh, which is going to bring about a confrontation. But this is nothing new or novel. You go back into the Old Testament, go back further, you go back to Genesis, the patriarchs of God's people, and you see the presence of the Philistines, and you see conflict with God's people. You look at Genesis 26, you see Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he looked out his window, and he saw Isaac with Rebekah, and he thought about all the things that Isaac possessed, and he envied Isaac, and so he wanted to cause trouble. So he went back and filled all the wells with earth that Isaac's father Abraham's servants had dug back in his day, just wanting to cause conflict. Go forward into Exodus chapter 13, and you read even when God brought his people out from Pharaoh, God said this in regard to the, uh, the Philistines that he would not lead them by their way even though it was near. And he said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So even at this point, Israel and the Philistines, that's just quakes to conflict, it seems, all the time. In Joshua 13, when we read of them conquering the land, taking the land that was promised to them, we see that, of course, there was a portion that was the region that was, of course, um, that, they, that the Philistines possessed uh, before that they went into the land. And then even in the book of Judges, there's just regular conflict between the two as judges are you know, lifted up and deliver the people and then the cycle. And then we even see in chapter 13, verse 1, where God would sometimes use the Philistines to discipline Israel. This particular case, it reads, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines, for 40 years. So this relationship, it goes deep. You even go some almost 500 years later to the time of the prophets. You know, King Saul beginning the United Kingdom around 1050 BC. And if you go to Ezekiel, for instance, and him beginning his prophetic work at 592 BC. And then later when he was pronouncing judgments that would be against the four nations, he said this about the Philistines. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites, which were their portion, and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. And then Zephaniah makes it extremely clear when God says that he will destroy the Philistines and there would no longer be an inhabitant. So this relationship between Israel and the Philistines runs deep. And here they are, deep in the land of Israel, far from their borders or their territory, and so confrontation comes before them. They're on one side of the valley, and then God's people are on the other side of the valley. So again, conflict. But instead of a bloody battle this time, there's a champion warrior of the Philistines that comes out. You imagine, over seven feet tall, got all this bronze armor on, weighing somewhere between 120 to 220 pounds, has this javelin of war with its spearhead weighing 15 pounds, staring across at Israel, as we know, calling out his challenge. But just for some perspective, me would be in a track and field coach, these details strike me. Because the shot put that the high school boys put, that's 12 pounds. And those high school boys, state champions, usually put that thing about 50 to 60 feet, which is impressive. But I'm sure Goliath could have put it a lot farther. Uh, those javelins that we throw, the boys in the high school competitions are 800 grams, which is just a little bit under 1.8 pounds. And typically state champions are anywhere 160 to 190 feet, but those things have an arc. He's got a javelin with a 15-pound head on it. This is a mammoth of a man that's standing across the valley and calling out this blasphemous challenge before Israel. So the crazy thing, though, is when we think about verse 11, they try to remember back and think, well, why did Israel even want a king to begin with? Well, the primary reason was so that they would have somebody to send out to battle for them. But King Saul here is just like the rest of Israel. He's dismayed. He's terrified. So as we spoke about last time, King Saul is an, an utter failure as a king. And this is a catastrophic failure in terms of his spiritual deliverance of the people. But now even physically, he will not do, seemingly maybe cannot do, what they initially desired of a king. And so things look pretty bad for Israel at this point as they're continually mocked by this Goliath for 40 days. Once in the morning, once in the evening, he comes out to issue this uh, challenge, basically saying, send out your warrior, we'll fight, the loser will become the servants of the other. And all of Israel listens to this day after day, and they're all filled with fear. In the meantime, Saul's trying to do something. He's offering them great riches, he even offers his own daughter in marriage and yells them that they could have freedom from taxes, anything to just go away so they don't have to fight Goliath. But when we come to verse 12, we see that things shift. The shepherd arrives. But we also see a little remnant of what we had discussed last time with man's tendency to focus on the external. Jesse's three oldest sons are at the battle lines where Israel is encamped on that hill across from the Philistines, across from Goliath. And there's that reminder. We see Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. 
So those are the three that Jesse sends to war, and we shouldn't be surprised. Those are the three that Samuel and Jesse primarily supposed would be, become the anointed king of Israel. They looked the part. But based upon the situation, I mean, what good are they? They're just like Saul. They're afraid, they're terrified, and they're doing nothing before Israel's opponents. And so we think about what David's going to do here just shortly. We are in the beginnings of seeing a different perspective. David possesses a different perspective. So when he comes, and this is by command of his father, Jesse, he's to bring food to the commander of the thousand that his brothers were a part of and bring food to his brothers as well. He comes down there and, of course, standing across, he would see and eventually hear Goliath come out and issue this blasphemous challenge. And it is interesting that David only heard it once and he had apt response when the rest of Israel had heard it many times and continued in their dismay and fear. But upon David hearing it, listen to what he says in verse 26. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So what strikes me is that David comes amongst Israel, who's in dismay and fear, but yet he is not paralyzed by that same fear. He sees things differently. He has a different perspective. If you continue to read, you see that his brother Eliab holds this contempt for him. And then we continue reading, we see that Saul doubts him. And of course, his doubt doesn't just stick with David. He, he doubts God. King Saul is an utter failure in his responsibilities. So it's very clear that David is thinking one way and all of Israel is thinking differently. And so that's one of the most critical elements of this part of the story when we think about David and his ascension to becoming the king. And of course, that picture of what God's anointed would be like. David possesses a different perspective. And because of the situation, David overcomes three Goliaths, not just one. If you step into his shoes, he overcomes the contempt of his brother Eliab, which if we really think about that for a moment, that would be difficult. Think about the dynamics of the brotherly relationship and the family dynamics. He overcomes that contempt. I was a younger brother. <laughs> I really feel that. Number two, he overcomes King Saul's doubt. David is a faithful Israelite, and this is the king, the anointed. And we see even in the coming chapters, when he is running away from the terror of Saul, he continues to respect and honor and show loyalty to the king's anointed. And here he is, the king, showing no faith in David or God. And yet David has a different perspective. And then finally, of course, he overcomes Goliath himself. But if we look to verses 34 through 37, and we just examine David's speech or, or what he says in responses to Saul's doubt, we see some important things here. Because when you examine this whole account, the battle itself is two verses. So that's not what this is all about. The speeches, the things that David says, his perspective, those are the critical elements of this part of the story. So David responds to Saul. 
Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Eliab's contempt, Saul's doubt, the mammoth of a man before him uttering these blasphemies is of no consequence before David. And if we see David's not calling upon his own skill or his own ability, and he's not just fired up that someone is defaming Israel and that this blasphemous Philistine is defaming Israel in this way. He's looking back to what God has done in his life. And because he's seen what God has provided in the past, he's able to, in the present, have tremendous faith. And that's key. Looking back to the past and seeing what God has provided, what God has done, to allow him, to allow us to stand courageously against something that could so easily provoke fear, provoke us to run away in our carnality and provoke us in a way that would lead to ultimate failure. But David can stare all these things in the face. Eliab's contempt, King Saul's doubt, and this mammoth of a man uttering these blasphemies before the people of Israel and all of Israel being afraid. And yet he's able to act rightly. And so it begins with his perspective and his ability in the moment, in those times, to look back and think about what God has done. And then in the present, he possesses the tremendous faith to do what is right. And of course, that is encouragement. That's a lesson in and of itself for us. Now, as we can continue, if you come to verse 41 with me, we get into the battle element of this story. As we might expect, Saul wants to load David up with all this bronze armor. I mean, he's thinking carnally. This is how Saul thinks. We know him pretty well at this point. And of course, he puts it all on David, and I'm sure that was a humorous sight. David, of course, or I say, of course, David is like, I, I don't trust these things. He specifically says, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So he puts them off. When David goes out there before Goliath, I'm sure in Goliath's ego, he was probably insulted just by the presence of this warrior that Israel has sent out. He probably thinks really highly of himself. And so he immediately mocks David, mocks the situation, and goes on to tell David to come over here so I can kill you and take your body and feed it to the animals. But if you look into verses 45, 46, and 47 at David's response, we see that this is not, and we remember, this is not coming from a perfect, sinless man. David is not that. He's a man, just like us. But yet, he's a man with a different perspective. We cannot overlook that, and it's that perspective and there's a lot of people, or I say a lot, but there's definitely people that will confess or profess God. 
But then if you examine them, you examine what they say, what they do in their, in their everyday life, you would have to label them an atheist. So it's one thing to say it, to have an intellectual agreement, but it's another thing to have tremendous faith and to be able to walk by that faith like David in a situation just like this. And David basically communicates, you come at me with weapons, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Wow. Wow. Ah, the name of the Lord. Think about the power of God, what he is capable of and just speaking. David understands this. And David is willing to stand up against these things with that type of courage to say, you come at me with weapons, but I come with you with the name of the Lord and trust that his God will help him stand. Not once does David point to himself and his own years of experience in battle or any of his own skills. He points to God at every instance through this story. And he tells Goliath, you will fall and the whole world will know that the God of Israel saves. And our God is mightier than sword and spear and flesh. We know Goliath didn't receive those words well. We know that there was a battle. But David communicates this victory will come by God's doing. God will win the battle. David will not win the battle. God will win the battle. It is the battle belongs to the God as David communicates. And so as we see in verse 50 and following, yes, David, of course, prevails over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. And then Israel, think about this. They've been filled with dismay and fear, but because the anointed... God's anointed stands up with tremendous faith and acts courageously. Now they're courageous. Now they chase after the Philistines, take them all the way back into their own territory. And then after this has happened, they come back. David has the head of Goliath and they come into Jerusalem and the proclamation of victory is given in Jerusalem. So that brings us to just a couple points in the message when we consider this story as a whole. Like I said earlier, it's not really about the battle. That's only a couple verses. But when we examine the things that are said, we see that there's these two key pictures here. That's what we've seen here. God's anointed and how God will rescue the world. And I think the big picture is the glory of God being proclaimed and defended. So Israel is presented with this enemy that is seemingly unbeatable. Seemingly, it's impossible to overcome them, but that's because they're carnal. They're thinking about their own power, their own abilities. But God will send one that can defeat this opponent. Because the one that God sends will not act upon his own abilities or powers. He will act upon the spirit that God gives him. And he will have the power of God. And so the first thing that we see big picture wise here is that Jesus is God's anointed and he is sent to defeat the enemies in which we cannot defeat. And there are three. And Jesus has defeated these for those of us that are in Christ. Jesus has defeated Satan, sin and death. But man cannot overcome those three 
of his own abilities and power. We must submit to God's anointed. And Jesus is God's anointed. So we think back to David, think back to the contempt of Eliab, think back to the doubt that Saul put before David, and we see that David understood that this was not about him. So even in those very difficult circumstances where you had those dynamics put before him, he was able to think the right thoughts. He was able to look back and think about what God had done, what God had provided, and therefore in the present, he was able to act upon that tremendous faith. If we go and look at that, the Hebrew writer says of Jesus, then we see that Jesus is this one that will save not just Israel, but save the world. And we think about Jesus in the same, in this parallel, as we saw David acting earlier in the story. The Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Think about Israel and their fear of Goliath and this seemingly impossible opponent. And then you think about man and our fear of death. Even within the the Harry Potter series. Dumbledore relates to Harry Potter that man fears two things, darkness and the unknown. Man fears death. Only those who are in Christ, only those who know that they have victory over death through Christ do not fear death. He is the only one that can give us that victory. But we have to be like David and have the perspective to look back and know what God has done so that we can carry that faith today and tomorrow and forever until we are given that rest, until we are given that reward, that inheritance that has been stored and sealed by the Spirit. Now, mankind today, like we said, is Israel. And it is only through Christ's victory, through his death and resurrection, that we are able to stand like David. Now, the second picture here is just as important. We see that, of course, David defeats Goliath. Israel rallies against the Philistines and drives them away to Philistia. Uh, now, that impossible opponent, like we said, Goliath, has been overcome. He's been defeated, just like we spoke of Jesus, having defeated Satan, sin, and death. We have the victory, or those that are in Christ have the victory. And therefore, we can call upon Jesus to help us with any and all of our spiritual enemies because we now have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're able to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We think about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We can put on the whole armor of God and take our stand against the schemes of the devil. He's allowed us to pray so that we can access and plug into the power of God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have all of these spiritual blessings in Christ. But coming into David's perspective, this is what teaches us how once we're in Christ, how we continue to walk with Jesus hand in hand every day. 
and deal with the different troubles and difficulties and trials that he would put before us. I mean, if we just think about the fact that there are going to be trials and that God does discipline and he does allow trials for our own strengthening, then even when we look back to see how God has helped us deal with those trials, we must remember, lest we waste those difficult experiences and therefore we are weak in the present. So the way things are, are manifested through our remembrance creates the possibility for strength in the present, but only when we are connected with that remembrance and we carry that perspective with us continually. If we come back to the Saul-David comparison, then we're able to see that their perspectives were different as, different as we had mentioned earlier. Saul's perspective, though, and this is critical, did not have anything to do with God being with him. He was carnal. He looked out, he saw the external things, and he did not think that God is mightier. He did not think that God is present, that God will deliver. He looked upon himself. He looked upon the armies of Israel. He looked upon flesh, and he was afraid. David understood that God was with him, and not once did he point to flesh. He pointed to God, and that's why he was able to stand so courageously against these things that could so easily provoke fear and ultimately failure. And so it's that. His faith was that God was with him. His faith was that God was with him. And so ultimately, the two points that come forward through the message that we have to carry with us is that Jesus is God's anointed. He has won the victory. So we must rest in Christ so that we can have you know, victory over sin and Satan and death. And then secondly, we must know that God is with us and we must have our remembrances connecting back to what God has done previously, not just in the pages of the Bible, but in our own lives, those difficulties, those trials, those experiences when we had to depend on him and he carried us through and strengthened us so that in the present, we will depend on him as well. When the trials come, we will not look to flesh. Like David, we will look to God and allow him to help us overcome the current trials. And we will continue in that pattern, walking with Jesus always until the reward is given to us. So whenever we have doubts, whenever we have fears, we go back to the cross. We see Jesus's victory in going to the cross, dying, and by the power of God, being raised to life. And we know those of us who've been baptized into Christ, that we have been raised by that same power in our forgiveness of sins, and we walk in newness of life. And that's what strengthens us. So no matter what the present holds, we walk in strength, we walk in faith, and we know our path. The lesson is ours. We'll now be led in prayer.